Live. Well, you can learn about issues that affect us every day. Stay the world. Real people, real talk. Made to help people in our community in every way. For your girl. In the healing process, sometimes you have to go back to your past and look at that, address that in order to actually heal. And if you don't do that, sometimes those things from the past will impact your, your present and your future, um, sometimes making it hard for you to trust, uh, hard for you to realize your potential. Think about that. Hello, I'm Beverly Taylor. This is the 411 Live, real people, real talk. Today, my guest is somebody that I have been bugging to get back on this podcast because he's joined us before. It's Reggie Jackson. He's the co-owner of Nurturing Diversity Partners. He's a lecturer, a writer, a historian, and so much more. Welcome, Reggie. Thank you, Beverly. Good to be back. It is great to have you back. Um, also, I want to congratulate you because I was looking at the Milwaukee Press Club finalists, and I saw this name, Reggie Jackson. I said, I wonder, is that Reggie? And then I saw it was for Best Column, and I saw the title of the column, and I said, yes, that's Reggie. Because the title of, let's see, How Our Whitewashed History Fuels a Path from Hate Speech to Violent Mass Shootings. And I was like, that's Reggie. That was me. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, I have to tell you that um, I, like I said, I've been bugging you because you were supposed to be on the podcast last November and you had a stroke. Mm-hmm. which shocked me, shocked a lot of people, and uh, a lot of people were concerned about you. So I'm so glad to have you here and so glad to see you doing well. Thank you. That must have been a shocker for you, huh? It was. It came as quite a surprise. Fortunately, my wife was with me when it happened, and she forced me to go to the emergency room. You know, I just told her, I said, I just feel kind of tired. I'm just going to go home and, you know, get some rest. And yeah. She's like, we're going to get you behind to the hospital. <laughs> so, you know. I listened, yeah. you know, and, you know, went to the hospital and they, they told me right away, yeah, you had a stroke. And they kept me there for three days uh-huh. doing some, you know, some testing and, you know, no real treatment right away. But just looking at, you know, the condition of my brain and, you know, how it impacted my body. Fortunately, it wasn't a really major stroke. It was a pretty minor stroke. I mean, no stroke is really, really minor. Yeah. But... The damage that it caused wasn't anything significant. You know, there was no paralysis. Uh, It just impacted the strength on the left side of my body and made my voice, you know, not the voice that I'm accustomed to hearing. So that's the biggest struggle I've had is just, you know, getting my voice strong again. But my body feels great. I've lost a lot of weight. Yeah, you have. some lifestyle changes. You know, eating a lot better, Beverly. Mm. My wife and I are both so much healthier now. And... uh, my body feels the best it's felt in years. Yeah. Now health is taking a priority, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so, and I said last November, and, and, you know, just talking to you now, is because we were waiting for that voice to get stronger. Right. So progressively, it has gotten stronger. It is. It's still, you know, a ways to go. Yeah. But, you know, it's stuff that I work on every day to strengthen it. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. It'll take a little while before it gets back to where I want it to be. But, you know, it, it's it's significantly stronger now than it was even a few weeks ago. I, and we were talking before. There's so many people that I know who have had strokes and relatively young people. Uh, and you were mentioning nationwide that that's a huge number of people who have strokes annually. What did you say, 800,000? About 800,000 Americans have strokes every year. That's a lot of people. That's yeah. a lot of people. Did they give you any indication of maybe why or what well, led to it? Or do they even know? There were a couple things that were related to the stroke that I had. One was the fact that I have type 2 diabetes, mm-hmm. which runs in my family. And also um, one of my arteries was clogged with cholesterol. And that's, that was the main cause of the stroke was the cholesterol blocking one of the arteries in the right side of my brain. Oh, was wow. like severely clogged. It's it's still clogged, but it's it's a lot better than it was. And uh, you know, I'm actually going for another another examination and procedure for them to take a closer look at that artery uh, in early May. But they did an MRI on me mm-hmm. about a month ago, and they said, "Oh, it's a lot better than it was, Reggie. Nice. You made some really good progress." That's so funny. you know, our bodies heal 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 themselves. And you know, I've done a lot of you know things to change. You know, just the way I treat my body. I, I got some really good advice from a friend of mine, Beverly. He said, listen, Reggie, we have to treat our bodies as if we're in a relationship with our bodies. And he said, if it's an abusive relationship, then it'll end up like other re- abusive relationships. So don't oh. be abusive to our bodies anymore. So I've been very careful and cautious about, you know, what I do yeah. in terms of what I eat, eating a lot healthier, uh, you know, eating things that, are good for my body instead of things mm-hmm. that are not good for my body. You know, I've been exercising on a regular basis. And, um, you know, it's all of the things that my therapists, you know, worked through with me, physical, occupational, and speech therapists, they really did a fantastic job pushing me. Wow. And uh, so I'm, I'm feeling really good. So, Reggie, as I'm talking to you inside, I'm just like, uh-oh. Because the last time I, you know, my annual, my physical... Um, the cholesterol was high. So I'm thinking, okay, <laughs> we, I've got to do something. I, I've, I have to make that a priority to get that down. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, by you and, and your willingness to share, you're encouraging people to take action and take their health seriously. So yeah, I thank you. It's something that we take for granted. You know, we can't really see inside of our bodies mm-hmm. and know what's going on, but you know, I advise everybody to make sure that you, you know, you check in with your doctor, get an annual physical, get that blood work done to see where your numbers are. Yeah. And if there's something that's that's an issue, make sure that you get whatever help you need. Otherwise, it could, it could end up a situation like mine. Absolutely. You know, just out of the blue, out with my wife and mother-in-law, you know, enjoying a nice sunny day. And next thing you know, I'm driving and I got lost. I never get lost. I got lost. Uh-huh. And um, my wife was like, there's something wrong with you, Reggie. I'm like, no, I'm okay. And then we went out to eat. And my mother-in-law and my wife were both like, Reggie, there's something wrong. You're not, you're not being yourself. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm myself. They're like, no, you're being like really quiet and you're not saying anything. I'm like, I'm just kind of tired. So that's what I felt. I didn't feel anything mm-hmm. other than just I felt a little tired that day, Beverly. And uh, finally my wife was like, I think you need to go to the hospital. And I was like, no, I actually went upstairs when we got home, and I got on the treadmill. 
Oh, my wow. wife was like, get your butt off of that treadmill. What are you doing? Are you crazy? <laughs> so I got off the treadmill immediately, and she said, we're going to take you to the ER. So we, you know, we, we drove to the ER, and uh, they admitted me right away and kept me in the hospital for three days. I was in the ICU unit for two days. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, they finally released me to go home that Friday. And it was such a pleasure to be home. And uh, I, I tell people that you never really know how much people care about you until, you know, there's a crisis in your life. Mm -hmm. And I had so much just support from my family, you know, friends, neighbors, everybody coming by. I mean, at first two weeks I was home, Beverly, I didn't have to prepare a meal Everybody was bringing me food uh, mm -hmm. almost every day, which was just so generous oh, of people. Nice. Yeah. And my father, you know, my father and I have never had much of a relationship. He lives in Detroit. He drove over from Detroit to spend some time with me. Oh, wow. And that ended up being, like, really, really positive for me. And I was able to talk to him more about, you know, the things I've been doing with my life and show him some of you know, the awards I've received and showed him a couple videos of me, you know, speaking publicly and for the first time in my life, he said, son, I'm really proud of you. Oh, wow. I was like, you know how long I waited to hear you say that? So that was really like an important moment for me. But my support system was good. And so throughout this journey, this recovery journey, I've had a really strong support system. My wife, you know, my mother, you know, friends, family. Yeah. It's really critically important. So, you know, people don't realize that you have to keep you know, relationships with people that will take care of you in a time of need. You know, don't burn those bridges. You know, you may be mad at somebody, but don't kick them out of your yeah, life. Yeah, absolutely. Keep people in your life because you never know when you're going to need them. Yeah, yeah. Good advice. Good advice. So, uh, you know, at the intro, I was talking about delving into the past, looking at the past so you can move towards a brighter future. And the reason why I brought that up is because of the redress movement that you're involved in. And it is, um, it's kind of a way of, uh, I look at it as, as healing, really. Tell me a little bit about Redress Movement and how you're involved in it. So I joined the Redress Movement officially last year. I was hired as a member of the research team. It's a national organization that launched in three cities initially, Charlotte, North Carolina, Denver, Colorado, and Milwaukee. And uh, the Redress Movement is a black-led organization committed to leading a multi-racial movement that empowers communities to take direct action to redress racial segregation. And, you know, we've all heard Milwaukee's the most segregated place right. in the country. So, you know, we're the poster child for segregation yeah. in many respects. And so the Redress Movement works in deep partnership with local communities to repair the harm caused by intentional policies to segregate communities. And we do our work by educating, uh, not only educating, but also mobilizing communities and shift, to shift the narrative about how we became segregated and the impact of that. And then um, winning redress victories. So holding people accountable for creating the segregation that we have and the, the negative impacts of that. Okay. It's really an important part of what Redress is trying to do. And our starting point is housing, but we work in solidarity with others who are working on, you know, social justice issues and redressing harms of the past. It's really important, as you said, you know, the past 
really is something that we have to address. We can't just continue to ignore the ugly parts of American history because it's still impacting us on a daily basis, even if we don't see it or recognize it. I can see why Milwaukee was chosen. You know, you said three, and I can see why Milwaukee was chosen. Because as you mentioned, you know, typically when people think of Milwaukee, they think of segregated city. And when you talk about home ownership, you know, the, the, the imbalance is off the chains. I think it was like, I read something like 27 point something percent of blacks owning their homes where 70% of whites owning their homes. So there, and there are a lot of reasons for that. You know, you go back to the redlining and all of those different things. So is all of that being addressed? Yeah, all of those things are. So, you know, one of the first things that, that we started to do as a research team was to look into the history of segregation, the specifics of each of those communities. And we, we wrote up a document we call a story map of each of the three cities. You know, each of the cities has segregation issues, but they're different in Denver and Charlotte than they are in Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. But in each of those three communities, there were groups of people that were working towards, you know, doing something about the segregation policies and practices that had damaged those communities. So that's why the three cities were chosen, because there was a history already there, people doing some work initially, and they wanted to just kind of come in and support those people that were doing the work, build build coalitions with folks. And so when we think about Milwaukee, the black population in Milwaukee has the second lowest black home ownership rate of the 50 largest cities in the country. The only city worse than Milwaukee is Minneapolis at 25%, Milwaukee at 27%. Wow. And nationwide, over 40% of blacks are homeowners. So we're way, way behind the national average for blacks. But we, as a nation, we haven't made much progress since the 1968 Federal Fair Housing Act was passed. You know, we just celebrated the anniversary of that recently. But we haven't made a lot of progress. The black home ownership rate back then was just a little over 40%, and it's still just a couple points over 40% today. So we still have a long way to go. Right. Because even though that's higher than Milwaukee, that's still low. Very low. It's very still low. low. So who is who are you bringing to the table? Who will be brought to the table in Milwaukee to deal with this? So we've been working very closely. Uh, one of my colleagues here is Dynasty Caesar. She's a, a field organizer from Milwaukee. And what Dynasty has been doing is working, reaching out to people in the metro Milwaukee area, within the city of Milwaukee, suburbs, exurbs, people that are doing work related to, you know, educating people about the history of segregation and also people who want to see some positive changes happen. People who understand that, you know, this long period of decades and decades of segregation have created some real problems and they want to get past those. So, you know, community organizations, you know, foundations that are interested in doing work to help out. You know, we're working with a variety of different institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to bring a coalition of people together. One of the organizations we're working with is called RON, Rebuilding Our Neighborhoods. They've been really, really working hard, you know, working on, you know, affordable housing issues here. Yeah, Uh, Working with the Sherman Park Neighborhood Association as well and multitudes of other organizations. So there's some great, you know, groups out in the suburban communities that are doing some work. Um, You know, Bay Bridge is one of those organizations. Uh, Another is... um, um, Bridge the Divide, which is based in Cedarburg. Uh, so we, we've had a lot of support from a lot of different, you know, community-based groups that have been looking at segregation issues for a while and really want to make a difference. So it's it's really about building that 
that collaborative effort among everybody. Very good. Very good. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about what Redress Movement is all about. I'm with Reggie Jackson. Stay with us. We'll be right back. done the hard part. You quit smoking. Now do the easy part and get scanned for lung cancer. If you smoked, you may still be at risk, but early detection could save your life. Talk to your doctor and learn more at savedbythescan.org. Get it, slip it, cuff it, check it. Talk to doctor now and share it. Get it, slip it, cuff it, check it. High blood pressure silently affects millions of Americans. Staying on top of your blood pressure is as simple as these four easy steps. Self-monitoring is power. Visit manageyourbp.org to learn more. Welcome back to the 411 Live. I'm Beverly Taylor, and I'm here with Reggie Jackson, who is a part of the redress movement, and um, Milwaukee is a part of that project. One of the questions that popped in my head was, and you were talking about some of the diverse people, coalitions, and, you know, people who are partnering to, to you know, make this work, um, trying to tackle the issues of segregation, which we experience now. But when you talk about looking back to the past of how we got here, is it difficult or easy to address that piece of it because, you know, for some, you're talking to people who um, uh, historically benefited. So how how does that conversation go? Well, you know, it's, it's a challenging conversation because people don't know the history mm-hmm. of how we got so segregated. You know, pe- people generally believe that segregation is something that comes naturally. Like, you know, people want to live around people like themselves, but they don't understand the forces behind how we became segregated. So the Redress Movement came out of the work of Richard Rothstein's book, The Color of Law, which documented, you know, the role that the federal government played in creating segregated spaces. And so... A lot of people have done book clubs related to Mr. Rothstein's book. And so there's a lot more understanding of mm-hmm. how we got segregated. And what it does is when people know the forces, you know, the the role that the Federal Housing Administration played, the role that the National Association of Real Estate Boards played, insurance companies, banks, when they realize all of these entities were involved, it's like, okay, now, now we know that these weren't just individual you know, so-called bad people. These were institutions that helped to create segregation. And so now that we know that, we can work towards having a conversation about what do we do to change the situation. Mm-hmm. And these aren't just things that happen in the past. You know, people think about redlining, but, you know, there's modern-day redlining as well. I mean, we still have banks that are discriminating against people of color, in particular blacks and Hispanics. Right. Huge, you know, differences in terms of people's ability to get a loan to purchase a home mm-hmm. is still a huge challenge, you know, and even something like getting your home appraised. Yes, I've heard still of that. a great deal of bias in that process as well. So I think when people in our suburban communities, you know, hear about, you know, how we got here, it's an easier conversation than you would think, Beverly. You know, I've been having these conversations with people going back to 2016 when I first started doing a presentation I called The Hidden Impact of Segregation. And showing people, you know, how we got segregated because people didn't know. And 
once people were educated, they're they're asking different questions and they're, you know, the assumptions that they had about how to fix things, you know, change. I always say you can't fix something if you don't know how it's broken to begin with. Yes. You have to educate yourselves about the, the history. And part of what my job is, you know, on the research team for redress movement is to dig into that history. Currently we're we're working on looking at the history of the role that the real estate industry played, you know, nationally, but also looking into what that role was here locally in Metro Milwaukee as well. And those things really helped us to engage in what the next steps in the process are in terms of looking for some redress victories, holding people accountable. You know, you broke it, you're responsible to help fix it. Mm. And there's, there's so much evidence, Beverly. I don't think that people know that it's not really difficult to figure out how we got segregated because the people that did it, they left so much evidence behind. They were so blatant in their discrimination and racism for decades they weren't ashamed of it, and they just did it without even thinking twice about it. So there's so much evidence that was left behind that I tell people, like, listen, man, when you look at the evidence, it's it's very clear that what we have today is a result of intentional discrimination by a variety of different institutions to basically create, you know, home ownership for the white community and deny those opportunities for people in the black community. And as a result, you know, most people's wealth is is wealth in their homes. That's the biggest, you know, purchase we'll ever make. Right. And so when you talk about the wealth gap in this country, the wealth gap is primarily a gap in home ownership. So you look at a family in Milwaukee back in 1950. I like to use that year because there's data from the from the Census Bureau that shows that and that year, there were about 28,000 people in, in Milwaukee County that had active mortgages on their homes. And of those 28,000 traditional mortgages from traditional banks, mm-hmm. all but 369 were held by whites. So there were literally only 369 people of color that had a traditional bank mortgage in Milwaukee County oh, wow. in 1950. And then when you look at the Federal Housing Administration loans, there were over 5,000 of those and all of them was held by a white person. 3,000 VA home loans in Milwaukee County, all of them were held by white people. So, you know, when you go back at that time and you think about what was happening in the 1950s, you know, we were coming out of, you know, World War II, people were getting, you know, VA mm-hmm. benefits. You were starting to have our suburbs be built, roads be built to get people out to the suburbs. So there was a great deal of growth, and that was uh, the the probably the quickest pace of new home ownership in American history. And when you look back at what happened, you saw people of color weren't given those same opportunities. And so whites began to build that family generational wealth that they had to pass down to their children and grandchildren years later. But people of color, particularly blacks, were, you know, the door shut in our face. We didn't have those opportunities. And so we got behind not because we were negligent and we didn't do certain things. We got behind because we weren't given opportunities to do the same things that whites were. And I always tell people when I go out to our suburbs and exurbs that I use the term, you got to hook up. You got to hook up from the, from the federal government, from the banks, from all of these you know entities. They hooked you up and gave you what you have that you think you have because you know you worked harder than black people. No, you didn't work any harder. You just had people giving you things. That, entitlements. Yeah, that, absolutely, yeah. entitlement. You know, there's a great book that talks about those entitlements, and it's called When Affirmative Action Was White, and it looks at 
all of these different things that were done that benefited the white community and necessitated communities of color being left out of opportunity. So there's so much that people need to know to understand how we got right. to where we are. I always tell people that if you don't know the history, then you can't even have a productive conversation about where we are today. You have to learn the history. And we do a poor job of teaching the ugly parts of American history. We leave those out. And we don't really teach local history in schools. So there's so much about the local stories in Milwaukee that once people hear those stories, they're shocked. And I remember when I first started doing a presentation, I would show people some of the, the things that were said, very blatantly said by the Federal Housing Administration in the underwriting manual. They were like, no, they, they couldn't have said that, Reggie. I'm like, look, this is 1926. They started saying this, and it was in their underwriting manual all the way through the 1950s before they changed the language. They would say stuff that's blatant as, you know, the real, a realtor should never be instrumental in introducing into a neighborhood a character of persons that will be detrimental to property values, which basically meant, you know, these neighborhoods should stay, if they're all white, they should stay all white. If they're black, they should stay black. And so they steered people to certain neighborhoods and created segregated spaces. But what was most important, Beverly, were the racial restrictive covenants that people began to use that were that was pushed by the Federal Housing Administration. Said, listen, you're going to build this new subdivision. You're going to attach these covenants to the properties on the subdivision right. that specifically state that the only people that can that can occupy this space, you know, renters, you know, someone who leases the space, buys a house, whatever, they have to be white. Otherwise, they're not eligible to, to occupy that space. And those spread like wildfire through the 1930s and 40s and created the all-white spaces that we see in so many places around the U.S. And I was um, uh, noticing that, uh, I guess I was reading, uh, reading it somewhere where some folks in Wauwatosa, you know, they're buying their houses and they look and they're, those covenants are still in there. You know, they're illegal, they're not enforceable, but they're still there. Yeah, so the covenants were attached to the properties, and they, the, the way the language they use is that they run with the land. So it doesn't matter who the owner of it is. Once it's on that property, it runs with the next owner and the owner after that and the owner after that. And so they started writing those covenants. I think the earliest one we found was written in, I think, 1915 in Wauwatosa. And many of these were written in 1920s, 1930s, and they had, you know, a period that they lasted where they were legally binding, say, through the 1940s, 50s, 60s, even 70s. There was one in South Milwaukee that was set to expire in 2024. And so what happened in 1948, there was a famous Supreme Court case called Shelley v. Kramer, where the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that these racial restrictive covenants can no longer be legally enforced. They said they're, they're constitutional. They're okay because they're a partnership between, you know, different parties, but they can't be enforced, so you can't have the local authorities come in and remove families because they violated the terms of the covenant. And then finally in 1968, the Federal Fair Housing Act made those covenants completely unconstitutional. And it didn't mean that, that they got, they were gotten rid of. They're still there. They're still in the paperwork for those properties. Mm -hmm. So I'm part of another project, Beverly, that's looking into discovering where all of these covenants in Milwaukee County were. So the project is called Mapping Racism and Resistance in Milwaukee County. And what we're doing is we're using a protocol developed at the University of Minnesota by a group called Mapping Prejudice. They mapped all the 
racial restrictive covenants in Hennepin County, Minnesota, and they're using their same protocol to help us, collaborating with us to do it in Milwaukee County. Oh, wow. And we know that there are somewhere between twenty and 25,000 racial restrictive covenants in Milwaukee County. Uh, we're trying to, to map where each one of those is. We mapped about 2,000 or so, so far. So we're beginning to get a picture of where they were. And what's interesting and different about Milwaukee versus, say, Minneapolis and some of the other cities where they've been attempting to map the covenants is in uh, Minneapolis. A lot of the covenants were related to not just blacks, but had restrictions on, you know, people of Asian nationality, mm-hmm. Jewish families, a variety of different people. But all the ones that we that we found so far in Milwaukee County were restricting black families. Black people. Mm-hmm. Every single one of them that we found of the 2,000 so far that oh. we verified is, I mean, yeah, that's a covenant for sure. Wow. Okay. So we're almost out of town. And I knew this was going to happen because you have a wealth of information. But I want you to come back and talk to us about this whole progress that you are making in that. But when we talk about the redress movement, what what's what's the end game? So the end game is to build local you know, coalitions of people that are fighting to redress the damage caused by segregation policies and practices, you know, holding people accountable to redress the damage, to do something about, you know, the damage that was done. You can't go back and, and change the redlining policies and practices from the 1930s, 40s, 50s, but you can do something about the damage that they cause. You know, for instance, we can hold banks accountable you know, banks that were discriminating against people that continue to discriminate against people, we can ask them to do something different, you know, assist mm-hmm. assist in, you know, programs that will make housing more affordable, make it so that people don't have so many barriers in front of them to becoming homeowners. You know, we can hold real estate companies responsible for what they did very blatantly in their, in their, their you know, and they, they basically said, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to um, help black people to, purchase homes. We're going to keep them, you know, off to the side. We'll help white people. So we know that these things happen. And, you know, part of what we're going to do is, is you know, have campaigns where we're going to ask some of these entities to, to do something to repair some of that damage. You know, there are a lot of things that people can do. But part of it is that it's a coalition of people, you know, multi, multiracial coalition, people from the city, people from the suburban communities working collectively together for the same goals. Because we all want to see, you know, uh, a space where equitable and fair treatment is the norm. And we haven't seen that. All right. Reggie, thank you for coming. You're going to come back, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I, I love we to come have, back. We have so much to talk about and so many updates that you can give us. So I look forward to that. Yeah. Can I give a couple uh, pieces of places people can sure. go to learn more? So if you want to learn more about the Redress Movement and find out how you can become involved in it, you can go to our website. It's redressmovement.org. There's a bunch of information about who we are, what we do and ways of finding out how you can become involved as an individual or an organization. And then the Mapping Racism and Resistance in Milwaukee County Project. What we're looking for are people from the community to help with the project. So the way it works is that we we are able to get all of the records from Milwaukee County, you know, recorder of deeds for every property in Milwaukee County. This is like basically almost three million pages worth of documents with all of these housing deeds and have a computer go through those and flag what it thinks may be covenants but we have to have five human beings to verify each one that the computer sees 
So we're looking for citizen soldiers to help with the project. They can go to the Mapping Prejudice website or they can go to the website for Mapping Racism and Resistance. They can sign up to become one of those people that helps to verify the covenants. Excellent. Excellent. Sure. All right. Now we, ha we, we have our homework, right? Absolutely. We can all get involved. So thank you again. You're welcome. And thank you for joining us for another episode. Hey, we are a nonprofit organization. So if you're so inclined, go to our website, the411live.org, and help us out if you would like. We like to bring community issues, interesting people to you, and you will help us do that. Until next time, I'm Beverly Taylor. This is the 411 Live, real people, real talk. If you would like to check out past episodes, there are many ways. Go to your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Like and watch us on Facebook. Watch and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you have suggestions for future episodes, go to our website, the411live.org.